if you can give a very, very warm welcome to our own Rick Weifels. Hello. So I'm going to fix my hair. My original intent was to further my research into the five different periods of genealogies from Adam to our Lord Jesus. As you can see on the screen, the five periods are from Adam to Noah, there's ten generations, Noah to Abraham, another ten, then Abraham to King David, fourteen generations, King David to the exile in Babylon, 14 generations. And then from the exile to Jesus, 14 generations. I had touched on the topic of genealogies the last time I spoke in regards to how each of the four Gospels reflect on the genealogy of Jesus in four different aspects. So it seemed appropriate to continue in that vein. As the first genealogical section is from Adam to Noah, I focused on this period as I began my study. I thought I would research the first ten men in the line to Jesus. As I dug into this period, it became obvious that I needed to shift my focus to what the pre-flood world was like because it's just it was just so different. And... Uh, So this is a prequel, in a way, to the genealogy study. A brief mention regarding the source of some of this material. There are many books and writings that have passed down over the ages, and they consist of tradition as well as history. But they're not part of the Bible. I was surprised to discover there are 20 books that are mentioned in the Bible, but are not part of the Bible. I believe that this is because the Bible consists of God's plan of salvation or his plan of redemption. And all the tradition and all the history that exists is not necessary or crucial to his plan of salvation. We see a hint of this in John chapter 21, 25, where John wrote, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if they were written all down all at once, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So you can see in this list the 20 books that are mentioned in the Bible but are not actually a part of the Bible. And interesting, the book of life is mentioned here. The book of judgment, the seven sealed book. There's, there's 20 of them. And so if you need a better look at this, um, if you look at this stream online later, you'll be able to focus on that. It's a little small maybe there. So as I looked into these sources, as well as a few others, I saw a thread of continuity in them, and certain things were mentioned in more than one of these books, 
as well as in other documents. So, let's, let's start at the beginning. In Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we jump to John 1.3. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Here we're talking about Jesus, because in that first part of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and all things were made through him. Jump down to verse 13. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which means God came down. And the apostles said, we beheld his glory. Probably alluding to when they saw him in the transfiguration. It's apparent when we read that God created the heavens and the earth, the text is referring to Jesus. It is referring to the pre-incarnate work of Christ. Science subscribes to the Big Bang Theory. Dr. Chuck Missler used to describe the Big Bang Theory this way. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. Science teaches that the outward expansion of the universe is because of this explosion. Thrusting matter outward at a rate that would take billions of years to form our present universe. They believe it took billions of years for light from the distant stars to just now reach us, traveling at the speed of light. Day one, let there be light. Now, my position is a little different. It's my belief that God spoke the universe into existence. First, there was nothing. Then the universe appeared pretty much as we know it today. Science tells us that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, and the age of the earth is said to be 4.5 billion years old. Now, this is calculated by using an instrument known as a thermal ionization mass spectrometer. It looks at the proportion of two different isotopes in rock samples. Radioactive isotopes break down in a predictable amount of time, enabling geologists to determine the age of a sample. I'm going to say, I believe science is correct, and I believe these calculations of age are correct. Also, before you throw me out, I believe in a young earth approximately 6,027 years old, as determined by Sir Isaac Newton, Bishop James Usher, and Dr. Werner von Braun, just to mention a select few. Now, how can we reconcile billions of years of age with just a few thousand years of age? The key to this reconciliation lies with Adam. Adam was created not as a fertilized egg, not as an embryo, nor a newborn baby. He was created as a mature, fully developed man a little over 6,000 years ago, according to Bishop Usher. I believe God created the earth to be 4.5 billion years old when he created it. 6,000 years ago. I believe God created the universe to be 13.7 billion years old when he created it 6,027 years ago. And I believe that the light from the distant stars was created already on its way 
in order to explain the billions of years it would take to get to us, traveling at the speed of light. Bishop James Usher lived from 1581 to 1656, and he calculated the age of the earth and the date of creation from Old Testament genealogies and other historical dating found in the Bible. His conclusion was the year of creation was 4004 B.C. That would correspond to what might be referred to as the year zero. It's noteworthy that similar criteria was used by Sir Isaac Newton. He came up with 4000 B.C. for the year of creation. So these two guys were off by four years. The concept of a young earth, as presented by Usher, using in part the genealogies in the Bible, can be reinforced with some modern-day observations. Here's just a few examples I took from a book called The Evidence for Creation by Roger Oakland, Dr. McLean, and Larry McLean. Our first example is cosmic dust. Satellite technology enables scientists to measure the amount of cosmic dust that filters into the Earth's atmosphere every year, and they've calculated that over the estimated billions of years, more than 50 feet of cosmic dust may have fallen on the earth. Now, due to wind, rain, and other erosional factors, an accumulation of this amount could not possibly be found in any one location on earth. But these erosional processes do not exist on the moon. There's no wind, there's no rain. There was significant concern regarding the first lunar lander sinking in up to 50-plus feet of dust. Upon landing on the moon, it was discovered there were only a few inches of cosmic dust that had accumulated, and this new data suggested that the age of the moon was far less than 10,000 years old. And this was actually predicted by the creationist Dr. Werner von Braun, and that was based partly on Usher's genealogy data. Number two, Earth's magnetic field. The Earth's magnetic field decreases over time about one-half every 1,400 years. So just 10,000 years ago, the strength of the magnetic field would have been equivalent to that of a magnetic star, and no life could have existed. 30,000 years ago, the magnetic field would have generated temperatures in excess of 5,000 degrees Celsius. That's equivalent to 9,032 degrees Fahrenheit, and that would have vaporized all of the elements on the Earth. Number three, the shrinking sun. Now, this is just three of a huge number of examples. The sun is shrinking, and it's shrinking at the rate of 0.1% per century. It's the equivalent of five feet per hour. At this rate, 100,000 years ago, the sun would have been twice as large as today. 20, 20 million years ago, not billion, just a mere 20 million years ago, the sun would have been large enough to actually touch the earth. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Now, to me, that suggests that formless means no form. 
and void means empty, indicating the worth wasn't there. It was formless. It wasn't there in any form. It appears that created from nothing is exactly what God did. I don't believe that first there was nothing and then it exploded. I believe that first there was nothing and then the universe was spoken into existence, fully formed and fully mature, and just like with Adam. Let's take a look at Adam. Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground. Now, I think five weeks ago tomorrow, I had sinus surgery. And I remember being prepped, and I remember they move you over onto the operating table, and I'm looking up at the light, and the crew is around me. And I remember saying, God bless you guys. And then, it's like someone flipped a switch, and I opened my eyes. And I had total clarity. I wasn't groggy. I knew exactly where I was. I could actually see without my glasses. And boy, could I breathe through my nose. And I was amazed. I was like, wow. Wow. So I go home. I'm all bandaged up. And I'm working on this Bible study. And I come to this verse. Genesis 2, 7. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And I thought, you know, we tend to skim over these passages that we've read for years, and, but my experience, then coming home, had a day of rest, i got to get into this Bible study, and the first thing I saw was this verse, and what, it made me think, what about considering this from Adam's perspective. We just skim over this, but we don't think about what his experience was. First, there was nothing but a lifeless pile of dust. And then Adam opens his eyes, and he sees with perfect clarity, and he has a perfect sense of smell, and he knows everything. He can talk. It's likely he can read and write. In essence, the smartest most perfect human being to ever exist, just woke up. And his awakening from non-existence to perfect life in a brief moment of time, it must have been just astounding from his point of view. Birds chirping, animal sounds, exotic aromas. He's breathing perfect air into a perfect body. Now, this is a little tangent, brief footnote. There are references in the research that I did in several places where they said animals could talk before the fall. All right, maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. To us, it seems odd. But there are actually two instances in the Bible where animals did, in fact, speak. Genesis 3, the serpent, the snake, asked Eve, His God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden. And Eve said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The debate continued. One item of interest is God's... I don't see where he said anything to Adam is recorded in the Bible regarding touching the tree of life. He said not to eat from it. 
And I believe God told Adam about not eating from the tree of life prior to Eve being created. And Adam may have told Eve of this prohibition and emphasized the importance of not eating from the tree by adding she was not to even touch it. Another interesting point, it does not seem that Eve was at all amazed that she was debating with an animal. As though it happened every day. Numbers 22, Balaam saddles his donkey and off he goes and he went with the princes of Moab. This angered the Lord. He sent an angel to block Balaam's way. This happened three times where the angel frightened the donkey and made the animal stop in its tracks. Each time Balaam struck the animal with a stick. In verse 28, The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you have struck me these three times? Now, if I were Balaam, I'd be like, But Balaam responded, and he said, Well, because you've abused me, and I wish there was a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. (laughs) And the donkey replied back, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And Balaam was saying, no. (laughs) Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel blocking his way. It's interesting that the animal spoke. It's more amazing to hear Balaam's response as he was not the least bit surprised to be speaking with an animal. Possibly a carryover from the time prior to the fall. It may be it was known that animals could speak at one time. Back at the garden when Adam opened his eyes for the first time, I can envision all the animals that were close by looking over the shoulder of Jesus, amazed, maybe chatting about it. In Luke, we see that Jesus began his ministry at 30 years of age, which would place his death on the cross at about 33 years of age. I believe Adam was made to be about 30 years of age, 6,027 years ago, according to Usher. And just like the universe, Adam was made mature, close to the age of our Lord, when our Lord began his ministry and offered the opportunity to be born again. An interesting comparison is in 1 Corinthians 15, for Scripture says, the first man, Adam, was created a living being, but the last Adam is the life-giving spirit, referring to Jesus. And Paul draws this parallel between Adam and Jesus. We need to keep in mind that the gene pool was perfect in the beginning, It's apparent not only from New Testament, but other ancient writings that people could write. And we'll look at that in more detail next time. I personally believe that Adam may have been one of the smartest people ever to live, having 100% use of his brain. Uh, They say today we use about 10 or 15% of our brain. What, What did he look like? We've all seen on television technology that law enforcement uses. Prior to moving to Maui with my wife, I was involved in forensic audio for law enforcement. 
I would be handed a recording filled with noise and asked to extract incriminating dialogue that would lead to a conviction. So I have some basic familiarity with the level of sophistication law enforcement has available to them. We've all seen television shows where computer tools are used to reveal the incriminating evidence and the case is solved in about 45 minutes. And I can tell you with certainty that in the real world, it certainly takes a lot longer. Now let's consider other technology. I'm leading up to something. Let's say they have an old photo of a subject that's 20 years old. And they say, let's have this photo aged by about 20 years so we can see a good idea of what the subject might look like now. Well, let's think about that in reverse. What if we had a computer program where all the characteristics of all the races in all of the earth are loaded into a computer program, and they can extrapolate backwards about 6,000 years to a singular point of beginning, Adam. I think that could possibly give an idea of what Adam's characteristics may have been like. For some reason, we always see Adam portrayed as this howly guy. He looks, he looks like he's in the Midwest, He's at Woodstock. He's not wearing a lot of clothes. This is a picture on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, and that's God creating Adam. Very possible. This next photo. This shows Adam. This is my Woodstock version of Adam. Google Adam, and you're going to see these kind of shots. I don't think he looked like this. I envision Adam being different from anything we've ever seen. He was made in the image of God, possibly clothed in light. I see Adam as darker in complexion. Ancient writings claim Adam may have been slightly dark red in color because of the color of the dirt in that area. Makes me think of Kauai. I envision Adam and Eve being a little taller, better physically than anyone living today. And this is probably a good time to point out that, personally, I don't believe Adam and Eve had a navel. Why would they? They were perfect. They were perfect. Why would? It's more likely that Adam was created with a beard. All right, now we'll move on. How did they eat? were there rules about eating prior to the flood. In Genesis 1.29, it appears that everyone and every animal were vegetarian prior to the flood. In Genesis 1.29, God tells Adam what God has given to eat. Behold, I have given you every herb that bears seed and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed give it to you, it shall be for food. Fruit and vegetables. Fruit and vegetables. In the next verse, God says, to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creeps upon the earth wherein there is life or breath, I have given every green herb for food. I grew up on a thousand acre dairy farm and I just envision animals grazing. No fences. 
Now in Genesis 9.3, things change. God instructs Noah, they've left the ark, and God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, just like the green herbs. So here it shows God giving permission for the first time to eat meat. Maybe, maybe there wasn't enough plant life to eat yet, but it appears God specified meat after the flood and not before the flood. A big question about the time prior to the flood is, did it rain? Did it rain? And you know, there's a huge debate about it. The Bible tells us that in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, that would be day one, right? When he made the heavens and the earth and they said, let there be light. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the commentators, they're divided. They, they're, they, they're like, well, it didn't rain until there was a man to till the earth. And I thought, okay, i got to dig into that. Grass and crops appeared on day three. Man appeared on day six. So there's three days for this entire ecological environment to hang out before it rained. So I even mentioned the mist that rose and fell. A mist that irrigated the entire earth. Now Dr. Henry Morse had the position, and many agree, with the water vapor canopy theory. This is where a vast blanket of water vapor encircled the earth. And it caused, it was like a terrarium or greenhouse effect. And in a terrarium or a greenhouse, a mist comes up from the soil and it condensates and it comes down. It doesn't rain. It also filtered out harmful rays of the sun, which we here in Hawaii were very aware of the harmful rays of the sun. And the entire earth was to enjoy a somewhat temperate or tropical weather experience. There were no seasons, no appreciable wind, no rain. It would maintain an essentially uniform, pleasant, and warm greenhouse effect worldwide. Now, it's interesting that they have discovered prehistoric animals in polar regions instantly frozen with undigested tropical food in its stomach. So it's like they were in this temperate tropical region. They were grazing away. Bang! The canopy was gone, and all of a sudden we have seasons, and we have a non-temperate environment on the earth. When we see illustrations of the time Noah was building the ark, getting ready or he didn't know. It seems like he was building in a desert. When you look up information about Noah and Noah's Ark, it's always like this open field, nothing around it. Not accurate. 
I believe it was extremely lush with vegetation at that time due to the terrarium effect. I think it was like Hana or Kauai. And there, there were some big trees, and they had to be fairly close by. They didn't have tractor trailers bringing them in from out of state. Look at these photos of the full-scale reconstruction of the ark in Williamstown, Kentucky. This is a shot of the ark almost completed. The next shot, we see some huge timber. Some of these trees are 24 inches in diameter. And if you look at these timbers, we're not going to see this. If you look at these timbers that are spanning the ceiling, those are 24 by 24 inch timbers. I used to work in the timber framing industry, so I'm amazed at what they did here. This next shot, you can see people milling about, and it would take three people huddled together to equal the diameter of one of these trees. Huge. And this is all full scale based on what had to take place in order to support something of this size. Look how long this thing is, and look at the timbers just spanning that entire aisle. 85 feet wide. This ark, this picture next. At the far left, where you see something sweeping down, there's a little white bump. That's a truck. The ark, 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. Now, a football field is 360 feet long, end zone to end zone. So this arc was one and a half times the length of a football field, half the width of a football field. And it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. This water vapor canopy would be effective in filtering out ultraviolet radiations, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies from outer space. These are known to be the source of somatic and genetic mutations. Just as a reference, a genetic mutation is cellular degradation that exists prior to fertilization, so it can be passed on. Somatic degradation are cells that are degraded after fertilization, and they're not passed on. The type of weather and climate would have supported the long lives recorded in the Old Testament prior to the flood. Many people are recorded in the Bible of living close to 1,000 years of age. Now, it's possible that people live longer. It's just all of the material didn't, wasn't required for God's plan of salvation. Another interesting thing is immediately after the flood, the average age of people dropped precipitously. Now, this water vapor barrier, does the Bible say anything that could be attributed to a water vapor canopy prior to the flood? The Bible certainly does not mention rain. We can look at Genesis 1.6. God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it, the firmament, divide 
the waters from the waters. So if you're skimming through your Bible, I did. I assumed that land was now in existence and it was separating the Pacific from the Atlantic. That's how I saw it. But Genesis 1-7 goes on and says, God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And God called the firmament heaven. So we can consider three heavens. The first heaven is the air or the atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space. The third heaven is referred to as the throne of God, the home of God. Paul spoke of the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's presume that the firmament that God called heaven is the first heaven, the atmosphere where birds fly, where planes fly. This separated this separated the waters above from the waters below the atmosphere. How high would that be? So here's a photo from the International Space Station showing our atmosphere so you can see the earth you can see a panel of the of the space station and you can see this gold band which is the atmosphere the firm the firmament here's a breakdown of the levels of the atmosphere Now, the very top orange line is called the Kármán line. And the Kármán line is the unofficial end of the atmosphere. Above the Kármán line is space. Below the Kármán line is atmosphere. The Kármán line is 62 miles high. And so this next shot makes sense. Now, take a look at the landmass that this um, illustrator. You can see where North and South America line right up with Europe and Africa. And this must be prior to the flood. We see later on in the second group of genealogical people that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And so that may be that this is when the earth broke apart and we separated. It may be they were talking about languages dividing. We'll see. Water vapor collects in the atmosphere in the clouds. And eventually it condenses and it falls to earth in the form of rain or snow. So one of my favorite commentators for this period is Dr. Henry Morris, and he stated, if the entire water vapor in the atmosphere, in all of the clouds, covering all of the earth, were to condense and let loose all at once, the global level of rainfall would be approximately one inch. One inch. That's not 
much of a worldwide flood. So where did all the water in the flood come from? A good portion was very possibly the water vapor canopy that came down as rain. Lots and lots of rain. We see in Genesis 2.10 that rivers went out of Eden. And it's generally agreed that the source of the rivers must have been a huge underground pressurized artesian spring. This source must have been huge in order to supply enough water to irrigate not only the Garden of Eden, but to separate out into three or four other rivers. This global global pressurized underground water is considered the source of all the fountains of the great deep. It's mentioned in Genesis 7:11. So the flood was not a gentle, gradual accumulation of water. They weren't standing around, wow, this thing called rain. New invention called an umbrella. I don't think so. This was an instantaneous deluge. It happened upon the earth suddenly. Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 24 when he says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, just like today. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark, didn't know until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The Bible says that in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, all at once. And the windows of heaven were opened, and rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus will be coming back quickly. He won't be seen coming over the course of a week. I imagine the flood, not a scenario where everyone was standing around a week into it, commenting on rain. I imagine the ground exploded and the sky they had always known fell down on them all at once. Ancient writings suggest that upwards of 700,000 people were trying to get on the ark. 700,000 people. Here's another difference between now and pre-flood, time. Time was documented differently than how we see time today. Today we look at history as before Christ and after death, B.C., A.D. There was no B.C. or A.D. before the time of Christ. Time was in the A.M. designation, Anno Mundi, which means year of the world. And that's the time scale from the date of creation. So that's when we start with year zero. So we're going to take a slight detour. I'm leading up to something, but this is some required background. Spelling. There's times when we see a name from one of the genealogies listed in more than one place in the Bible, and there may be subtle spelling differences. Here's a copy of my family's genealogy. It's called Family Book Wifels. 
The first half is written in Dutch, and the second half is written in English. This next shot shows a page where I'm actually listed, and if we can zoom in on that, this next shot shows... Not happening? Froze up? Okay, so can we go to the next... There we go. My dad's at the top. You can see how my name is spelled. It's usually W-Y-F-F-E-L-S. And you look down, it says Barbara Holland. That's my mom. And then me, Richard, my three sisters, and my brother. This book goes back to 1670. Prior to 1670, the church that had the records burnt down. And so they don't have the records, but they, they had these records. Now the next slide shows how my name is and was spelled in Europe. W-I-J-F-F-E-L-S. Here's my last name in cursive. (laughs) When the first of my ancestors came here to America, it looks like the official at Ellis Island forgot to dot the A and the J, and in cursive it looked like a Y. Now just imagine Mahalalel and his family going through Ellis Island. (laughs) All right, language. Early historians and rabbis believe that Hebrew was the first language. We see that soon after the flood, during the second genealogy section from Noah to Abraham, that the Lord came down and confounded their language at the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, we see that the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Around 2100 B.C., God confounded the language of the earth so no one could understand one another. So now it became necessary to construct a way to translate from one language to another. Here's an example of translating from Russian to English. If I'm in Russia and I want to tell you that I am a doctor, it would be ya doktor. There are no articles in the Russian language. And so it would sound like ya doktor. A translator would add am a in cursive. And in our Bibles we see where the translators have added the proper way to translate. For me to say Hi, I doctor. It just wouldn't be right. But if I would say, I am a doctor. And so, we see this in our Bibles. Now here's an interesting point regarding language. We all agree that we read from left to right. I'm doing it right now. It seems that languages east of Jerusalem are read from right to left. And languages west of Jerusalem are read from left to right. Yep. Now, here's another interesting tidbit of language that relates to the Bible. In the 16th century, Rabbi Moses Cordovero stated that the secrets of the Torah are revealed in the skipping of the letters. Now keep in mind that Hebrew is written and read right to left. Here is an example of 
one of many equidistant letter sequence examples. In the book of Genesis, if you go to the first T, the first Tau, and you take every 49th letter going from right to left, it will spell Torah. Every 49th letter, T-O-R-H. In the book of Exodus, the exact same thing happens. You go to the book of Leviticus, doesn't work. Now in the book of Numbers, the same thing happens, but Torah is spelled backwards. H-R-O-T, starting with the first H, the first He. Every 49th letter spells H-R-O-T. In the book of Deuteronomy, the same thing. Torah spelled backwards as H-R-O-T with every 49th letter. So, all right, that can't be a coincidence. What's up with Leviticus? We go back to Leviticus. And we find that every seventh letter spells Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the unpronounceable name of God. So the Torah always points to God. In Psalm 40, it says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. What book? Well, at the time, the Torah was the book. So, every 49th letter. Now, let's take a look at the difference between transliteration and translation. Okay. Now, this is a Russian word, and it's spasibo. And spasibo, transliterated into English, sounds like the Russian word. That's what transliteration is. It just takes an undecipherable group of foreign letters and translates it so you can read it phonetically the way it was originally. So spasibo in English can sound like spasibo. Now if we go to the next slide, when we translate it, spasibo means thank you. So transliteration is different from translation. So let's take a look at the first section of the Lord's genealogy. This is Adam, written in Hebrew. Now, if we want to transliterate that unfathomable group of letters, we would go to our next slide, and it transliterates into Adam. Now, if we go to the next slide, it translates into man. All right, this is where we hold on to our seats. If we go to the next slide and we translate all ten names in the first group of genealogy, we have a prophecy. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God will come down teaching his death shall bring the despairing comfort. Go to the next slide. This is, you can see the italicized words that 
a translator would have added. It's interesting to note that this prophecy was given, completed at the time of Noah's birth and naming. It wasn't completed until then. When he was named during the time that we refer to as the pre-flood world. Now this ties in with the genealogy in the Gospel of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've already seen that everything that was made was made by Him. We jump down to verse 13 and it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is where the blessed God came down. Jesus is God in the flesh, King of kings, fully God, fully man. Jesus is the Son of Man. He came down. He gave the despairing rest by paying the wages of our sins. The wages of our sins is death. And he paid that by dying on the cross in our place. There are so many people in despair today, they don't even know they're unsaved. They don't know they need a Savior. And yet they're in despair. They have no hope. We're all born. We all live our lives and then we die and then eternity takes over. But if you are in despair, you can know that God loves you. You can know that He came down and He paid the price for all the sins in the world, including yours, including ours, including mine. And you can experience salvation. You can be born again. As it says in the Gospel of John, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This was prophesied from before the great flood. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking you're going to get away without a test question. So here it is. How did Noah illuminate the ark in the dark? Floodlights. Right. I'm going to leave you now, not with dark humor, but with some arc humor. I don't know if you can't read it. The lion says, here he comes. Give me half a dozen. So the chickens are plucking out some feathers. Here comes Noah. The lion puts the feathers in his mouth, and the chickens are up on the roof laughing. Animal pranks on the ark. Let's pray. Father... Father, we thank you that we had the opportunity to gather tonight. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to bless you and edify ourselves by dipping deeper into your word. We look forward, Lord, to you coming back soon. Father, we just pray for anyone who is touched tonight. We pray that you give them the gift of faith so that they can experience salvation and the gift of righteousness. It's the only way to be allowed in heaven. It's the only way to be righteous. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible goes on to say there's none righteous, not one. So you, Lord, are our only hope. 
So we thank you for the opportunity to serve you and to learn of you. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord. Amen.